This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I will be speaking with you about constipation today, uh, literally and figuratively bringing up the rear. I have nothing to disclose. Um, my surprise, uh, constipation was actually identified uh, in individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities as one of the fatal four conditions um, uh, that can lead to preventable deaths um, marked by the difficulty in diagnosing and identifying them uh, in these patients. And about 50% of those with IDD will develop constipation at some point. Uh, types of constipation, uh, there's acute and chronic. Um, I won't go over acute at this point, but rather focus on the chronic Chronic constipation is defined as having less than three spontaneous bowel movements weekly with associated straining and um, the uh, presence of lumpy or hard stools and possibly diarrhea. So if you think about the colon and its job, it's supposed to hold stool and um, extract water. So the longer that um, stool stays in the colon, the harder it gets. And when you see diarrhea in this setting, it's actually because of this immovable massive stool and the liquid stool seeps around it. And so um, the patient for all intents and purposes looks like he or she is experiencing diarrhea when in fact uh, he or she is experiencing severe constipation. The thing to do there is to continue to treat the constipation even though it seems counterintuitive. Uh, you can also have a sensation of incomplete evacuation or blockage. Um, and this should um, have you thinking about dyssynergic defecation which has to do with the pelvic floor. Um, when the pelvic floor is working as it should, the stool, the massive stool, can exit the body quite easily without anybody thinking about it. With dyssynergic defecation, you can have either early fatigability or easy fatigability of the muscles, or you can have paradoxical um, contraction and relaxation such that it's difficult to move that massive stool uh, down the line. So what are some contributing factors? Um, we know about diet and hydration, uh, and also uh, sometimes you can have uh, hiker practices, but diet, hydration, and inactivity are quite well known. Um, for today, I actually want to um, focus a little bit on the medications and comorbid conditions. So Lauren's patients who experience GERD are all on the same medications um, that are uh, uh, that my patients are on who see me for constipation. Um, if you look at the, the list of potential medications that can contribute to um, dysmotility or constipation, the list is long. It's ubiquitous, these meds, these anticholinergics, antidepressants, iron, antiacids, opioids, um, along with comorbid conditions of diabetes, hypothyroidism, uh, metabolic disturbances like hypokalemia and neuromuscular disorders. So you have somebody who is 55 years old, who is an, on, who has diabetes, on an anticholinergic for overactive bladder, on an antidepressant, who takes Tums, who fractured her foot, is on opioids, and is also taking an antihistamine for her seasonal uh, allergies. And you are set up for quite a bit of constipation. So I challenge us, I challenge you and myself to continue to keep a keen eye um, towards layering effect, uh, the layering effect of constipation in the medications that we prescribe this vulnerable population. In taking a history, what's, what's important when you take a history? 
having a baseline and knowing the baseline is super, super important. So what, uh, either from the patient or the caregiver or the family, what is the usual bowel pattern? What's the frequency and consistency? Are there noted or reported um, behaviors of straining, splinting, prolonged time on the toilet? Um, These are indicative of incomplete evacuation or the sensation of incomplete evacuation. Um, And also, is there fecal leakage or staining noted? Again, diarrhea. Um, What are some of the, historically, what are some of the methods that the individual has used to convey discomfort or pain, whether it's related to constipation or not? Are there verbal versus nonverbal cues? Are there behavioral changes alone? Is the individual um, more, um, is there acting out that's going on? Um, are they more, um, are they acting out versus less engaged? Um, and are there any mental status changes? So being super constipated can put you at higher risk for UTI as well. So you have, you know, another potential mix that could be going on there. Uh, it's also good to know what the previous therapies and response um, was. So not only the therapy, but how much they were taking and how long they took it for. So for example, taking fiber for three days and not having a bowel movement is not a good is not a good trial. Uh, lastly, but not, uh, not least is, is there privacy and allotted time for this activity? Um, if you hit the ground running every day uh, and your day is, is, is all about getting places and you don't have time or the privacy um, required to have uh, to defecate, it can also lead to constipation. So I, I love this chart. It's called the Bristol stool chart and a picture is worth a thousand words. Um, I used to make fun of it, but I really, really love it now. And the reason I do is it gives us common language uh, to use uh, not just among providers, but between providers and caregivers and family and patients. So we like a Bristol type three or four, um, and this is all over the web, very easily um, downloadable. Type three or four um, indicates, you know, solid stool formed, theoretically easy to pass. Type one or type two tells me that you're constipated. Um, And type one and type two with type seven can also still mean that you're constipated. So, what, what happens during an exam or what can you find? Um, general, you know, how, how does the patient look? Are they at 25 watts versus 150 watts? Um, and by that, I mean their general demeanor. Um, are they um, guarding? Are they withdrawn? Um, do they not want you to touch them when normally it's not an issue? Um, ENT, how are their mucous membranes? Are they dry? Uh, hair, skin, and nails, you're looking for signs of systemic illness. Uh, such as a thyroid um, uh, disorder, turgor for hydration. Um, your GI-specific exam will consist of the abdominal exam and the anorectal exam. Um, I would say that uh, you should consider a chaperone when appropriate. And one thing I, I try to um, do um, every time is to ask and to demonstrate. I ask whether it's okay to do what I'm going to do, and then I demonstrate it if um if the patient seems confused or seems um, uh, um, uncomfortable. The abdominal exam, um, when I lay the patient down, I ask the patient 
to, or the caregiver to um, lift the article of clothing covering the abdomen. What you wanna look for um, is, uh, is there distension? Is there, um, are there decreased or hyperactive bowel sounds? Uh, hyperactive bowel sounds uh, can be uh, noted in the presence of an obstruction or an impending obstruction. So that's something you should pay attention to. Um, when you percuss, is there timpani? Um, is there pain? Um, is there a mass? And are there peritoneal signs? Um, the anorectal exam uh, can be extra uncomfortable for some patients. And um, I would approach very slowly, make sure that the caregiver and the individual understands as much as possible what you're going to do. When you lay them down, it's, I usually do it um, on the left or right side, and I um, and it's uh, I have them tuck their knees up into their chest, and I tell them everything I'm going to do beforehand. And before I touch them, I actually say touch, and I touch their hip or their backside, and then I let them know what I'm going to do. On external exam, what you're looking for is presence of hemorrhoids. Is there a rectal prolapse that you're appreciating? Is there um, are there skin changes that um, uh, that indicate that there's a lot of fecal leakage where there's chemical irritation um, when the moisture is on the skin all the time? Is there fungal overgrowth? Um, and if you're going to do a digital exam, um, one thing that I've learned is as you're inserting your finger, you can tell the patient to bear down. That maneuver relaxes the external anal sphincter and makes the procedure a little bit less um, activating. In the rectal vault, um, or in the rectal vault, you can appreciate um, whether there are internal hemorrhoids, fissures, um, whether there's um, hard stool in the vault. And if they're constipated and there's no stool in the vault, it just tells you that the it's, it's more proximal. You can also appreciate a weak squeeze or, uh, yeah, you can also test the squeeze and note whether it's weak or normal. Um, evaluation. I'm sorry, I'm running through this so quickly. Um, I want you to get your full lunch. Um, evaluation, uh, initial evaluation can consist of a CBC to look for anemia, um, thyroid, uh, and uh, a basic metabolic panel. You can also look for occult blood. Um, and imaging, uh, initial imaging can be a KUB looking for stool burden. Um, I love the KUB. It's simple, it's relatively inexpensive and you don't have to sit still for too long. Um, additional diagnostics, um, and this, as, as Lauren um, quite elegantly put it, they're um, diagnostic options. They're not for everybody, and um, each of these tests deserves a conversation with uh, the family and or the caregiver and the, the individual that's affected because they're not, some of them are quite invasive and activating. So luminal evaluation with colonoscopy, um, any alarm symptoms, um, and any time you're evaluating for um, iron deficiency anemia um, in a patient. Cross-sectional imaging, uh, CT or MRI. Um, MRIs can be scary. Uh, you have to sit still for super long, depending on how long the test is. Um, and depending on the area of concern, you are in a tube with a lot of banging going on as the magnets do their work. Motility studies, um, the SITS marker test um, 
is something that I wish I could use more often. It's actually a little bit difficult to find. Um, what it is, is it's a small capsule that contains 24, 26 radio opaque markers, SIF markers. The individual swallows them. And on day five, only on day five, I don't care about day four and I don't care about day six. On day five, there's a flat plate of the abdomen that's taken and you can see where the, um, the rings fall. Less Five or less uh, retained rings is normal. And above that is abnormal. And what you would want to do is look at the distribution of the uh, markers. So if you see the markers distributed pretty evenly through that could be um, through the colon, that can be close, um, that can be uh, slow transit constipation. Um, if they're um, kind of gathered all in the pelvic area, that can be supportive of pelvic floor dysfunction or dysinertia. Um, a better test for uh, pelvic floor dysinertia is uh, anorectal manometry and or balloon expulsion. Um, however, these, these, these tests are invasive and they do, um, they only work really if the patient can cooperate and can understand um, and um, uh, can understand verbal cues and be verb uh, and, and reply. The, the important part of being able to distinguish any kind of constipation and uh, pelvic floor dysinergia is biofeedback. Um, everything else is the same, therapy is the same until you get to the biofeedback, which can be quite effective um, if you have pelvic floor dysinergia. Gastric emptying study, um, even though it's a little more proximal, uh, gastric dysmotility can cause constipation. Um, what are some alarm signs and symptoms? Um, that you, the caregiver and the patient should be on the lookout for. Um, acute onset constipation uh, or a change in stool caliber. This scenario would make me think of uh, an obstructive etiology such as a mass or um, a stricture. Uh, constitutional symptoms such as weight loss, uh, pervasive fatigue, um, altered mental status or behavioral changes, and hematochesia. Um, having those would also prompt um, uh, additional evaluation. Uh, the next two, the obstruction and perforation, are um, quite important. They are medical emergencies. Um, we learn that vomiting and nausea, vomiting, and cessation of flatus or bowel movements uh, is something you look out for. But as Lauren said about some of the patients with GERD, you really have to be looking for some of the subtle uh, signs and symptoms exhibited by the patient, which is why a baseline is super important. Um, anorexia uh, can occur, early satiety, nausea, vomiting can occur. And with vomiting, you also have a risk of aspiration. So you can also buy more trouble with that. Um, the patient um, might be noted to have um, abdominal distension, pain on palpation, and the decrease or cessation of flatus and uh, stool. Obstruction can lead to perforation, and um, a patient or an individual who is uh, perforated is, is sick. They need to be in the hospital yesterday. Um, they might be experiencing altered mental status, fever, severe pain, uh, a distended and firm abdomen, and peritoneal signs. Um, they might be guarding their, you know, this is uh, an individual who might be uh, foregoing meals, sitting in the corner, 
kind of hunched over and not wanting to move and irritate um, uh, their, their, their gut. Um, lower back pain is also an alarm sign and uh, an alarm symptom. So what are the goals with all of this? Um, obviously you identify the problem, but you've got to have a plan and the plan consists of um, identifying what, how many bowel movements a patient or an individual should have per day or per week. It doesn't have to be every day, but it has to be regular. Um, and if it's not every day, it can be driven by um, what the patient has always done and what they're comfortable with. Um, in your toolkit, you have, to, you have to know what's in your toolkit. Is it behavioral? Is it medication? Um, you have to have something for maintenance and you have to have something um, to treat breakthrough constipation and you reassess frequently. So what this looks like is if you have a goal to have a bowel movement every day and this morning you don't have one and by the time you go to bed tonight, you don't have one, you put into place the, the plan for breakthrough constipation. You don't wait three days before you figure out what to do. Whatever you um, use might take three days to work and you just get a lot of uncomfortable, um, you get a lot of discomfort and a lot of bloating and distension. Um, and if it's painful to defecate, that's a whole other issue that, that would cause problems. So you treat the day that you miss the goal of having a satisfactory bowel movement. Uh, what are some of the therapeutic modalities? Um, behavioral measures underpin everything, always. Um, so education for the patient, for the family and caregiver um, about what diet means, what exercise or mobility means, um, and all the alarm symptoms. Uh, record keeping can be really important, especially if there's more than one family member or caregiver responsible uh, for the patient or interacting with the patient. Um, diet and hydration. Dietary fiber, theoretically, uh, ideally would be between 20 and 35 grams of fiber per day can cause bloating. So start low uh, and go slow and increase water uh, along with that. Um, exercise, it doesn't have to be, you know, uh, huge amounts of exercise. It's just getting up and going. Um, exercise is great if they are, you know, can get on a bike or go to exercise class or get into a pool. But often it's just really getting up and going around the block or doing something to, to keep moving. Uh, toileting regimen can also be important. Um, so do they have the time and the space and is it part of their everyday routine? Every night after dinner, this is what I do. Or after lunch, this is what I do. Um, there's something called the squatty potty and I'm sure it's trademarked. Um, but what it really does is it allows your knees to be above your hips when you're seated on the toilet and to be wider than your hips are. And what that really does is it relaxes the puborectalis and straightens the rectum so that the stool is easily, more easily passed. The other thing that's kind of a little um, funny and not an everyday thing is looking into the toilet. Um, I'm not talking about hours and hours later. If you have a time for toileting and the individual is, is done, the caregiver might want to take a look at the toilet and figure out what it looks like and whether the goal has been met. Um, and then, of course, there's always pelvic floor uh, or biofeedback for dysinergia. Pharmacologic therapies uh, can... Two-minute warning, please. These are super, thank you. These are super, super um, old and cheap and super effective um, bulk, um, uh, bulk forming laxatives. Uh, I like them because they can be used in um, hard or loose stool. 
Psyllium is great, but if you can't have somebody swallow 10 ounces of water uh, in about 30 seconds, it's not for that uh, individual. Other laxatives, so surfactants, uh, docosate sodium. Uh, in my experience, it's a very hopeful uh, act whenever we prescribe this because I don't find it that helpful. I don't prescribe it very often. Plasmatic agents, um, out of these, you have your poly polyethylene glycols, Miralax, lactulose. They can also cause a little bit of um, gas and bloating. Um, out of all of these, I do like Miralax um, the best. Um, it is easily titrated and well-tolerated. Uh, I avoid stimulant laxatives in this population because um, especially if somebody has um, uh, challenges with verbal communication, uh, this can be poorly tolerated as it can cause cramping, bloating, unpredictable um, uh, stool pattern. Disimpaction, super important. Uh, this should be part of the um, therapy to break the cycle of constipation. What you're basically doing is disimpacting from the bottom and while you're gi giving laxatives, uh, laxatives up top. Um, bicycodal and glycerin both work great. Cortisone, nifedipine, and nitroglycerin I put on there because these are helpful for um, the These are helpful for um, hemorrhoids and uh, or anal fissure, which can make defecation painful. So these are just other um, newer medications, not so new anymore, but newer than. Um, misoprostol and colchicine are kind of old and out of favor. Um, nobody in our practice, I think, uses it. Surgery really basically last, last, last resort. Um, and then when to refer to GI? Well, I know it sounds simple, but when you think you need help, if you've tried the fiber, the usual things and the activity, and you really need some help, you refer to GI. Um, and for colonoscopy, luminal evaluation and motility testing. The last two slides I really like, um, they're pretty cool. I found them, um, one is from the state of New Jersey and one is from the state of Delaware. And basically they put into two pages what I just talked about in 25 minutes with 25 slides. So they're great. They're very portable. And um... you've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.